For this week's book club, I've suggested Romeo and Juliet. Having done some due diligence with slightly less known plays, I figured it was time for a real hit. When I directed it several years ago, one of the very first conversations I had with the actress who played Juliet was how on earth this could be considered the greatest love story of all time. On paper, two teenagers fall madly in love, get married and kill themselves in the space of four or five days, bringing about the deaths of several others along the way. But whether I quibble like this or not, it is one of the most famous love stories on earth and it's been adapted in every possible format for several centuries. In many respects, it starts off like a comedy. Here we are in Verona, which we know from that other play, and we meet various lusty gentlemen on the hot streets. I've always liked the suggestion that the first scene of the play takes place in the town square, as people are starting to come out of the church on a Sunday morning. First out are those who have been sulking at the back of the church, the Samsons and the Gregories of this world. As they start to bite their thumbs at their social enemies, more folks are processing out of the church. Of course, the more important people and those in higher rank are towards the front of the pews in the church and therefore they're the last ones to come out into the square. So last to appear is Prince Aeschylus, who breaks up the fight and sends everyone home to their dinner. And again, it seems that dinner is earlier in the day here in Verona than we might now conceive it. The feud between the families of Montague and Capulet is a big question. Is it really that serious? Among the earliest scenes of the play, one of these two is saying that really the two of them are old enough that they should just settle it. Later the same evening, when Romeo and his Montague pals sneak into the Capulet's old accustomed feast, Lord Capulet is adamant that Tybalt should let Romeo stay. Even if it's a masked ball, they can clearly see that it's him. When Friar Lawrence is presented with two impetuous teenagers who want to get married, he thinks that this might be the perfect alliance to end this feud. We're never told why the two families are at war, but it's been going on for so long by the time the play starts that it's really only Tybalt who seems to be fully invested in it. So, we have a lusty, hot Catholic setting in Italy. Romeo in love mostly with being in love and being a Renaissance gentleman at the beginning at least, has been moping and skipping church, mooning over a girl called Rosaline. His changeable loves are straight out of comedy. Think of how often Shakespeare mocks young lovers who fall out of love as quickly as they fall into it. This play has two types of clown in it too. There's the nurse and Mercutio, whom we will discuss. And we get a wedding for the lovers. But this isn't how the play ends, by any means. It's all going well until it really isn't. Shakespeare uses what his audience might have assumed was a familiar frame, this Italian city and a bunch of young men, but then mangles everything. Now, our expectations shouldn't be too hopeful, of course. Unusually, this play starts, in most but not all versions, with a prologue. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured, piteous overthrows do with their death 
bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end naught could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage. The which, if you with patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. One of the most extraordinary features of this play is the way that everyone announces the future throughout. Even despite this grim start, which tells us right away that they will kill themselves, we always seem to hope that things will go better for Juliet and her Romeo. Just about every character seems to predict terrible things throughout the play. There's a constant kind of dramatic irony. As soon as we hear the prologue, everybody in the audience knows the end, and we can hear the constant references to death. None of them seem to be tongue-in-cheek or an attempt to nudge or wink at the audience, but death-marked is a very apt description of this world. At times, it feels like it's a play full of fortune-tellers or psychics. Just think of how Lady Capulet tries to solve problems later in the play. She suggests that she could send to Mantua, and there she could get a terrible poison that will kill Romeo. And then she wishes her daughter married to her grave. Both of these come true in their way, but to Lady Capulet, they're just sharp thoughts off the top of her head. Likewise, Mercutio, as he dies, cries out, A plague on both your houses. And indeed, an outbreak of the plague confines Friar John and stops him delivering a letter, and in a way, brings about the deaths of both protagonists. The lovers themselves likewise talk a lot about death. Passionate teenagers as they both are, perhaps it's understandable that their first response is often very dramatic. Both of them threaten to kill themselves whenever things aren't working. And of course, Juliet fantasises about when Romeo might die, how she will cut him up and turn him into little stars. Comparably, Romeo thinks that Juliet's eyes are brighter than stars, and she could teach the torches to burn bright. So, while they are death-marked, they are also star-crossed, star-obsessed lovers. Ideas like this are launched and matched throughout the play. It is more full of puns and wordplay, perhaps, than anything else that Shakespeare ever wrote. The men of this Verona all seem to have read the Book of the Courtier, that great Italian book of etiquette from the early 16th century. Its guiding principle is sprezzatura, the kind of careless elegance that came from having read and trained and studied and practised enough that everything could appear effortless. The master of all this is, of course, Mercutio. Just about everything is a joke to him, or the possibility of a joke, and he is an excellent foil to how seriously Romeo takes himself at the start of the play. There's a story that Shakespeare had to kill him off because otherwise he would have overcome the play entirely. His jokes are fast and often filthy. He says some of the dirtiest things in all of Shakespeare. But he also gets one of the most extraordinary speeches Shakespeare ever wrote, responding to Romeo's talk of troubling dreams. Oh, then I see Queen Mab hath been with you. She is the fairy's midwife, and she comes in shape no bigger than an agate stone on the forefinger of an alderman drawn with a team of little atomies athwart men's noses as they lie asleep, her wagon-spokes made of long spiders' legs, the cover of the wings of grasshoppers, the traces of the smallest spider's web, the collars of the moonshine's watery beams, her whip of cricket's bone, the lash of film, her wagoner a small grey-coated gnat, 
not so big as a round little worm, pricked from the lazy finger of a maid. Her chariot is an empty hazelnut, made by the joiner squirrel or old grub, time out of mind the fairies' coachmakers. And in this state, she gallops night by night through lovers' brains, and then they dream of love, or courtiers' knees that dream on curtsies straight, or lawyers' fingers who straight dream on fees, or ladies' lips who straight on kisses dream, which oft the angry mab with blisters plagues, because their breaths with sweetmeats tainted are. Sometimes she gallops or a courtier's nose, and then dreams he of smelling out a suit, and sometimes comes she with a tithe pig's tail, tickling a parson's nose as he lies asleep. Then dreams he of another benefice. Sometimes she driveth o'er her soldier's neck, and then dreams he of cutting foreign throats, of breeches, ambuscados, Spanish blades, of healths five fathom deep, and then anon drums in his ear at which he starts and wakes, and being thus frighted, swears a prayer or two and sleeps again. This is that very mab that plats the manes of horses in the night and bakes the elf flocks and foul sluttish hares, which once untangled much misfortune bodes. This is the hag when maids lie on their backs that presses them and learns them first to bear, making them women of good carriage. While some have suggested that she might be connected to Queen Maeve from Irish folklore, it's as likely that she came from Mabel in Chaucer, if anywhere. She, Queen Mab, is responsible for dreams, and Mercutio goes on this terrific flight of fancy, imagining her delicate, tiny appearance, and how she makes different people dream of different, usually appropriate things. But Mercutio's conclusion is that dreams are nothing but vain fantasy. Even seconds after this rapturous description, he's joking again. Now later in the play, in a scene that seems to answer this one directly, Romeo thinks everything is going well because he had a good dream. If I may trust the flattering truth of sleep, my dreams presage some joyful news at hand. My bosom's lord sits lightly on his throne, and all this day an unaccustomed spirit lifts me above the ground with cheerful thoughts. I dreamt my lady came and found me dead, strange dream that gives a dead man leave to think and breathed such life with kisses in my lips that I revived and was an emperor. Ah me, how sweet is love itself possessed, when but love's shadows are so rich in joy. Romeo should be so lucky. Of course, if Romeo had even a drop of patience the size of Queen Mab, things might not go so terribly. Last week's book recommendation was Emmeth Smith's fabulous recent volume, This is Shakespeare, which I neglected to mention within the episode itself. In it, she goes to great lengths to describe just how bad Romeo's timing is. He rushes everything. He cannot wait. And as a result, what could easily be a comedy with a pair of lovers, a few obstacles and a happy ending, turns into this violent tragedy. Romeo is always firing too soon. Apart from having shown up late on Sunday morning, he's early for everything else. He rushes to Friar Lawrence first thing on Monday, and he and Juliet are married by lunchtime. He meets his pal straight afterwards, and before he can tell them, he's challenged by Tybalt, who's still seething after the party the previous night. Romeo hasn't had time to tell Mercutio anything, and that's why Mercutio fights Tybalt when Romeo seems to refuse. And then Romeo rushes in and tries to intervene, and Mercutio is killed. 
If only he stayed a little longer having those nice dreams in Mantua, or waited to hear from the friar, as he is so eager to do, instead of rushing back to Verona, things might not have been so permanent. And of course, there's an almost exquisite pain we feel if a production manages to blur the lines so that Juliet wakes up just as Romeo has drunk the poison, so they see each other alive before he dies. Once again, finally, he has acted too soon, and it's also too late. There's even something to be said for how young Juliet is. The play is determined to make us know that she is about ten days shy of her fourteenth birthday. Even in Renaissance Italy, this was extremely young. But perhaps useful for Shakespeare, since whatever boy was playing the role would obviously have had to be that age or less. It really strikes me that perhaps if poor Romeo went to bed and slept, he might have had better judgement. He's been up very early on the first day of the play and he doesn't go to sleep on Sunday night at all, so that by the time he meets Tybalt on Monday afternoon, he's sleep-deprived and wound up with joy and really he should just go and have a nap. Romeo's name, which comes under much discussion in the play, is Shakespeare's invention, or adaptation. The story, like so many, wasn't quite original, but Shakespeare took it from a long poem by Arthur Brooke called The Tragical History of Romeus and Juliet. If you've seen the film Shakespeare in Love, you might remember that the plan there was to create Romeo and Ethel the pirate's daughter, but this is absolute, albeit hilarious, fantasy. Juliet was allowed to keep her name, interestingly. It seems that all the girls in Shakespeare's Verona are called Julia, or Little Julia, Juliet. Other names in the play are likewise Shakespeare's invention. Benvolio, whose name means goodwill and who is always trying to do the right thing, is all Shakespeare. Mercutio, whose mercurial wordplay so dominates, is also remixed from an original. So is Tybalt, which was a common name for cats, a joke that Shakespeare throws in wherever he can. I was going to comment that the poor nurse doesn't seem to be given a name, but remembered that Lord Capulet, excited for the party to celebrate Juliet's wedding, their second lavish entertainment within a week, does call her Angelica. I can't imagine that he's saying this to Lady Capulet. This couldn't possibly be her first name. It seems more interesting that the man who was so angry earlier in the week and who called the nurse some horrible things should now address her by name, now that all seems well. One's name in this play is something to be questioned, challenged if necessary. Whether the nurse is entirely angelic or not, she is certainly a messenger, and more of a guardian to Juliet than her stern, distracted parents. So, like that, she's certainly more of an angel than anyone else. By the end of this play, all of the young people are dead. Tybalt, Mercutio, whatever age he is, Paris, Romeo and Juliet, and, of course, Lady Montague, all die before the sun comes up on Friday morning. The remaining parents may reconcile and put up lovely statues and turn Verona into a pilgrimage site for young lovers from all over the world, but it's too late. A generation has been removed. In less than a week, these two youngsters blaze their way into love, and what's so exciting is just how much should be ahead of them. Infinities, as boundless as the sea. And perhaps that is why it's such a loss to see them die. Their passion for the future, for each other, for the potential between them is so outrageously big, and of course, it's impossible. It's always easy to wonder what Act 6 of a Shakespearean comedy would look like, what happily ever after could possibly mean. But for Romeo and Juliet, the clock ticks from the very beginning. 
we've been told in the prologue that the play will be two hours long. Now, while this is just about impossible unless people are speaking ridiculously fast, everyone in the play is always talking about time. It's 9am, it's noon, the earthquake 11 years ago, and it's such and such number of days until Lammas Eve. Time is a constant enemy. In the back of our minds in the audience, we know that Romeo and Juliet must be dead within the two hours that await. The violent delight of seeing two people fall so absolutely in love is electric, and Shakespeare even frames it like a sonnet. Do bear in mind that the prologue is a perfect sonnet in and of itself. When Romeo and Juliet meet at the Capulet party, they have a witty exchange about palms and pilgrims and shrines and kissing. It's in exactly 14 lines, evenly rhymed, and then it ends with a kiss. Thereafter, they're witty and funny and more comfortable with each other, and indeed their poetic flights of fancy grow more and more exuberant as that evening goes on. But the first meeting, their first negotiation with each other, has the inevitability of a metrical poem. And after 14 lines, something has to happen. And of course, it's a kiss. I think that this play has been adapted into more works of art than any other Shakespeare play. If you even take a quick glance at the bottom of its Wikipedia page, you'll get a hint of just how many things have been inspired by it. I started the episode with a little bit of Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet Overture, which is one of my favourites. And of course, there are operas and ballets and other pieces of programme music and the brilliant musical West Side Story. The play has also been filmed several times. If you want a beautiful evocation of Renaissance Italy, there's the Franco Zeffirelli version. And if you want a bit of a more modern, inventive take, there's Baz Luhrmann's incredibly energetic film. I'm seldom one to negate a sincere piece of work, but you should avoid the 2013 movie at all costs. It was adapted by Julian Fellows, who created Gosford Park and Downton Abbey, both excellent, but the film takes so many liberties with the text that it just becomes ridiculous. I've one final thought. Whatever happened to Rosaline? Does she ever hear from Romeo again? I mean, obviously he's dead a couple of days after he just drops her. She is herself a member of the House of Capulet. Perhaps she was playing hard to get because she knew that the family would never tolerate a match like that, and she's nowhere near as brave or as crazy or as passionate as Juliet. Shakespeare obviously liked the name Rosaline because he makes her the witty lead of the play that we'll look at next week, Love's Labour's Lost. Here, lucky Rosaline gets to move to France and befriend a princess, so it's not all bad for her. As endings go, there are few more sombre in Shakespeare than in this play. After so much talk throughout of heat and sunshine, and Lawrence's beautiful early morning observations when he first appears, the Friday morning that ends the play will be a miserable one. A glooming peace this morning with it brings. The sun for sorrow will not show his head. Go hence to have more talk of these sad things. Some shall be pardoned and some punished. For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. Romeo.